you have a Bible, open up to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 4. The contrast between 1 Samuel chapters 3 and 4 couldn't be more striking. Last week, we uh, looked, about, looked at a man and learned about a man who was eager to hear God's Word, who was willing to obey it and willingly recognize himself as God's servant. Well, this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're looking at a nation who, quite frankly, are very apathetic to God's Word and are just as inclined to ignore it as anything else and actually view God as their servants. So it's a complete uh, polar opposites from one another. We almost see the thematic verse. I really think it's the, the controlling verse of the first seven chapters, uh, and you really probably could make the case. It is the controlling verse of the entire book of 1 Samuel. You recall it's chapter 2 and verse 30 when the Lord says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. This concept, this theme, this principle weaves itself through all of Scripture, and we constantly see the corresponding blessings and the corresponding fallout of those who find themselves on either side of that. Well, we're ending three chapters of Samuel's rise to prominence, three chapters of individuals who seek to honor God above all else, and three chapters of individuals who are seeking to honor themselves above all else. It's as if you could get a sheet of paper and draw a line right down the middle and write all the events and situations that happen to, to those who honor God on one side and to those who dishonor God on the other. And if the point wasn't clear enough, the author writes and includes this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you have been reading ahead, and by the way, on the bottom of our bulletins, we always will tell you what passage of Scripture we're preaching on the next week. Uh, that's to help you out. That's so that you can at some point through the week uh, read it by yourself to think about what we're going to be preaching and thinking about as a congregation on that coming Sunday. Or if you lead a family, that's an easy way to lead them in some kind of devotions. Just open up the text that the church is going to go through and read it together so that when you show up, you'll either have more questions or you're wondering, you're, you're more in, equipped to engage in the actual content of the sermon. Point is, if you had been doing that and you read the chapter 4 coming into this week, you would have really noticed some con contrast. Number one, this is unlike any of the three chapters before it. It actually almost seems out of place and so dramatic in the shift. So, for example, um, Samuel's literary light is out the person that every chapter was about for three chapters all of a sudden is gone from the pages. I mean, he shows up in uh, the first half of verse 1 here. Uh, but really, uh, as I taught you, verse numbers are not something that the Bible's inspired with. We put those there, and sometimes we get them wrong. I think the first half of verse 1 should have ended chapter 3. But the point is, Samuel's gone. He's been the player, the focus the whole time. Samuel is completely gone. And all of a sudden, the Ark of the Covenant is introduced, and for three chapters, or at least two weeks, today and next week, the Ark of the Covenant receives the focus and the attention. It's pretty clear when you see such a stark contrast in Scripture that the author is intending to communicate something by those very compelling details, as we see clearly in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now, up until this point in our narrative, we have seen God's salvation and the lesson of that great thematic verse weaving its way through every chapter, very subtly, but it's always been in the background. 
years and years of God's word going out, God's promises, uh, God's blessing, God's warning uh, in the form of Hannah's prayer, in the form of Elkanah's house being blessed, in the form of Samuel receiving his prophetic uh, his call to the prophetic office and his commissioning, even in this mysterious man of God's warnings that we saw in chapter 2, years of this, God's Word has been going out to His people. But if you noticed, uh, and you can flip back to those chapters, they were all kind of one-on-one conversations or very personal, very intimate conversations. There wasn't more than a handful of people that in any one of those knew what was going on. But now in chapter 4, all of it just erupts on this national scale. So up to chapter 3, a lot of it's just been God's Word privately ministering to key individuals. And then when we hit chapter 4, there's this staggering change of scenery, of character, and now it's not private. God's warnings, God's blessings, all these things are now made public in the most amazing way. You know, that right there in and of itself is, is really telling about the way God works, isn't it? God is not on my time schedule. He's not on your time schedule. He does what He intends. Um, and sometimes it's months, sometimes years, sometimes decades. And if you know anything about God, uh, church history, centuries that God takes to work through and in the lives of His people. He is not in a rush which is actually kind of comforting in our world where all of us are always in a rush. The one person that probably ought to be in a rush is just taking his sweet time. I guess that helps to be sovereign. You have that luxury, but God is taking his time. And for us, what has taken three chapters over the last maybe four weeks, uh, a total of maybe 120 minutes of us studying the word together, so the length of one movie, for them covers 20 years. You realize that? So from Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, to where we are now in Samuel chapter 4, for us, 120 minutes of looking at the text, it was 20 long years for them. All through that time, God's Word, quietly, uh, subtly, but certainly going out to God's people. God's warnings, God's blessings, God's promises, going out through the lives of Elkanah, through Hannah, through Samuel, this man of God. And and we'd like to think at least to some degree through the priesthood, although as we learn, for the most part, they're very corrupt. But God's word for 20 years was going out, and that message was for His people to respond to Him, to turn from sin, to turn to Him in grace, to recognize that the things that they were living for would not bring them life. At the very least, it would betray them. At the worst, it brings them death. God's Word constantly calling to the people, please see, turn from your self-pleasing, self-deceiving ways, and please recognize that I don't exist for your pleasure. You, I made you to exist for mine. That message constantly going out. 20 years. For 20 years, God being mocked, God being ignored, God being dismissed by and large by the nation. And for 20 years, He was patient. Until finally we get to chapter 4, and it's as if he draws a very, very, very stark line of demarcation. Everything that he was doing pub- privately, quietly, hoping people would respond, but after 20 years of being snubbed, being mocked, being insulted, being ignored, 
he does something about it. And it's not as if he finally had had it, the, the divine patience had hit its limit, and he's just going to come unglued, kind of like we can with our kids after 20 minutes of them nagging us. It's not like that. God recognizes that if he does not bring in and step in and intercede in a way that seems extremely harsh, as we're going to realize, if he does not intercede, the cancer of, 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 for, of living for yourself, the cancer of, of people ignoring God's loving commands would spread and contaminate and decimate his people. And so he steps in in the most dramatic way to turn things around. That's how this chapter fits into the scheme of 1 Samuel as a book. And this morning, we're going to witness three stark realities, and with that, three questions that get answered from that. But don't worry, that doesn't mean this is a six-point sermon. They're actually overlapping themes. So, for example, the realities we're going to see is the reality of the foolishness of God's people and the way they've treated Him, verses 1 through 11. Then we see the fulfillment of God's Word in verse 12 through 18. And then the tragedy of God's departure from His people in verse 19 to 22. Now, embedded in those realities are three questions that, that naturally, as I read the text, it just came out at me, and so I'm using them as, as ways to think about it. Some people like alliteration, so you got those Fs, and some people just like questions. So here are some questions that map onto those points. Why did the Israelites think getting the ark was a good idea? Second question, why did God allow the defeat of his people? And then third question, how should we think about the difficulties that we endure? So we're gonna be addressing both those realities and questions simultaneously. Let's start with the first one. The foolishness of God's people, or why did the Israelites think getting the ark was a good idea? Let me read to you uh, verses one through four. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to the battle against the Philistines. A uh, little historical point. Up to this point, all of 1 Samuel chapter 3 is taking place in some place, in an area called Shiloh. It was the kind of the temple area. This battle was 20 miles to the west. The Philistines, if you're unaware, were a coastal people, and they've always been a thorn in the flesh of God's people. They had, ne they had always been a problem to them. Uh, and so where they're at now, at Aphek and Ebenezer, was where the, in, uh, on the coastal region of, of Israel, modern-day Israel, hits what's called the Negev and the Shvelah, and it becomes the mountainous areas. The battle was basically the first line of defense of the coastal area before they got into the mountain region where Shiloh was located. So it was strategic in that the Israelites wanted to stop the Philistines from coming off the coastal plains and into where they lived. So that's where Aphek and Ebenezer is located. Verse 2, the Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Okay, let's stop right there. The elders asked the exact, question, the exact right question here. They were decimated by the, the Philistines, 4,000 of their troops dead on the field. And they say, why has the Lord allowed us to be defeated by the Philistines? Right, that, that right there tells you that their worldview was completely theocentric. There wasn't an event, good or bad, that didn't have something to do with the Lord. And they said, why did God allow this to happen? Right question, but then they foolishly came up with this bad idea right at the end of verse 3. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh that it may come amongst us and save us from the power of our enemies. Here's my point. 
It was the right question. Why did God allow us to be defeated now? But they didn't let the question linger long enough. They immediately went to, let's get some action here. Let's do something about this. I know, let's grab the ark. I'll explain in a little bit why they would think that. The problem is, they should have let the question hang in the air a little longer because it was a legitimate question. Why did God allow this defeat? We are His people. These are His enemies. Why is He allowing this? Because if they let the question hang a little longer, in the first service I used the, the metaphor of a kind of coffee beans and tea leaf, if you like those drinks. You know, when you put leaves and beans in hot water, the way you get the flavor out of them is, is that process of letting the, the heat bring out the flavors. But if you drink teas and coffees, sometimes you let the beans and the leaves roast longer because the longer they roast, the more intense the heat, what tends to happen? Different flavors, different notes come out of the beans and the leaves that add a different nuance to the taste. Here, here's my point. When we endure difficult situations, our, our gut reaction, whether because we're Americans or whatever it is, is fix it. Just find a solution, fix it. Whatever the problem is, however it went sideways, we're going to solve it. And sometimes, oftentimes, when it comes to the way we live, that's not always the wisest course of action. Sometimes stopping, resisting the, the penchant to just solve the problem, and just sitting in it for a while, and allowing the difficulty to kind of, can I even say, kind of start to grind us, reveals things later on that it didn't at first that can be really helpful. Difficult, but really helpful. For example, had these Israelites sat, why did the Lord allow this? And instead of just responding, they might have been thinking about, well, wait a minute, the Torah, which they all had, Leviticus 26, 17 tells us that if we disobey God, if we ignore Him, if we snub Him, and in battle, this might happen. It's on the screen behind me. Leviticus 26, 17 says, I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. You shall flee when no one's pursuing you. More striking to the point, in the book of Judges, chapter 13, verse 1, God says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. I mean, talk about deja vu. That's exactly who they're facing on the battlefield. They exactly got decimated. They asked, why did the Lord do this? This isn't the first time this has happened. This isn't their first rodeo with the Philistines. Yet they forgot that it says right there, God says, look, the reason the Philistines dominated you and I put you under their subjugation for 40 years was because you forgot me and you did what was evil in my eyes. If these Israelites had let the Word of God form their view of the world, maybe things would have been very different. But what they did, kind of like what we do, is we don't let the Word of God form our view of the world and our lives. We basically let our lives form our view of life, don't we? And so rather than having God's Word inform the way I move through my life, my life pretty much informs the way I move through my life. And that might be a short-term gain, but a long-term loss. And we see that happening with the Israelites. One of the things I'm very thankful for with our elders here at Christ Community Church is they are men who pray a lot. And what may be an obvious decision, we've come to the conclusion that just because it's obvious doesn't mean we still shouldn't be praying about it. 
And one of the reasons is we recognize what happened in Joshua 9. If you're a note taker, write down Joshua 9. It's an amazing story of Joshua and the Israelites at a point of amazing obedience to God and blessing. We're taking over Canaan and the promised land. And then the Gibeonites came up, and they were sly Gibeonites. The Gibeonites just lived next door, but they said, let's dress ourselves up like we came from a far-off country, and we'll make a covenant with the Israelites. And since they'll think we live far away, we won't be a threat to them, and they won't, they won't wipe us out. And then the Israelites took the, took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And Joshua 9.14 makes this interesting point. It just simply says this, the Israelites did not consult the Lord. And that became a snare to them for decades and decades and decades and decades. And so we need to let God's word inform our lives. Don't let our desire to fix a situation prevent us from thoughtful reflection and thinking about it and seeking counsel. I mean, that might be un-American, but it sure is biblical. So what do they do? Back to the text. They grab the ark. We just got decimated. Why would the Lord do this? I don't know. Let's go grab the ark. Now, I don't want to make any assumptions. We have not yet talked about the ark, and most of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, so I want a clear fact from fiction here. So I've got a picture of the ark behind me on the screens here. doesn't look as fancy as the one in the movie did, but we think that's a pretty good replica of it. I'm going to leave that picture up there for a second. Uh, God told them how to fashion this ark, particularly in the book of Exodus chapter 16, verses 32 to 34. You can write that down if you're a note taker. And in number 17, God's talking about this ark. Now this next photo shows you what was inside the ark. What God had the people of Israel put into the ark were the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And, and we don't have the, the, the tablets are in my photo there. I don't have it. But the tablets of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, which is that thing that looks like popcorn in the corner there, uh, and that rod was Aaron's rod. Now, these things were symbolic because the manna, you remember from the books of Leviticus and Numbers, was how God fed the people of Israel for 40 years eating this manna-like stuff. So, man, if you ever complain that your wives are making the same kind of thing, be glad you weren't an Israelite. For 40 years, that's what they ate. It was representative of God's faithful and consistent provision to the people. Aaron's rod as a shepherd's rod. It was to symbolize the, the guidance and the protection of his people. And then finally, the Ten Commandments to guide the people. So the point being, all in this ark, we can go back to the other picture, Tanner, all within this ark was represented God's provision, God's protection, God's guidance of his people. And whenever the people of Israel would set out in their 40 years of wandering the wilderness, the ark of the covenant would go before them. So there was a visual reminder to the people, there goes our Lord Yahweh, the Old Testament name for God, there he is, providing, protecting, and guiding us. And in faithfulness, he did that for 40 years. That's what the ark symbolized to the people of God. Now, the ark had two parts to it. This first part is basically the lid. It's where those two cherubim, those are the angels, and their wings connected. In Exodus 25, that's called the mercy seat. The reason that's called the mercy seat was in Israelite theology that we understand that, that when God would meet with the high priest, in a sense, right, God doesn't have physical form, he's a spirit, so in a sense, he would sit on the mercy seat. I love that God's throne on earth is called a mercy seat. It's very appealing, comforting. So he would sit there upon the wings of the cherubs, cherubim, and his feet, the ark on the bottom, according to 1 Chronicles 28, was the footstool of God. So in a sense, the ark was the, the throne of God symbolic here on planet earth as he led, provided, and protected his people. 
So this was a big deal to the people of God, a big deal in a way we have no even category to compare it to. And furthermore, okay, you can skip to the other slide, Tanner. There is precedent in the book of Numbers, chapter 10, verse 35, where it says this, and whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So there's precedent in that the ark would lead the people of Israel into battle. Because again, the symbolic idea is that even into this very frightening situation uh, that warfare is, I will guide, I will provide, and I will protect you. And the ark would go right into battle with them. Furthermore, in uh, Joshua chapter 6, there's this amazing passage of how God had the ark and the priests wander around the city six times, seven times before Jericho fell at their feet. So there's precedent that the ark would be taken to battle and God would fight on behalf of his people. Of course, the whole idea was that there was this fellowship, this relationship between God and his people. There was this intimacy and a love and God wanted to be in in their presence. It wasn't the apathy and the disobedience and, and, and ignorance that marked Israel for generations at this point. The ark was ignored by them for the most part in the sense of what it meant. But here... When they were faced with a defeat, they said, get the ark. God will win because God's honor is on the line here, and he's not going to back down. God will not let his glory be diminished, so bring the ark out here, and that will take care of these Philistines. See, the the people of Israel, and and we see that, sorry, let's go back to the verse um, 7 and 9. We know that that was kind of the tactic. Let's back up to verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant, so so they, they sent some people back, Uh, In verse 4, they went to Shiloh to bring the ark. Notice, by the way, who's carrying the ark out here. Um, And the verse 4, the two sons of Eli, it's going to be, this is significant, Hophni and Phinehas, and the two uh, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Verse 5, and as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth itself resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise and the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Listen to what they said. A God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Okay, so remember, keep in mind, these are Philistines. They're polytheistic, so they're assuming that the Hebrews are just as polytheistic. They understood what was going on. They just thought it wasn't one God because at that culture, monotheism was non-existent. There was no such thing as one God. Everyone had multiple gods, so they're thinking there's a bunch of gods in the camp. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Verse 9, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, and be men and fight. So at first, we know that this was the battle tactic of the Israelites because there's this commentary of the Philistines that the gods have come into the camp and now we're going to be decimated. You see, for the Israelites, the ark was their religious ace in the hole. They think they had God. They, this was going to work out. They make the common mistake that we make, and that's assuming that God responds to pressure tactics, that, 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 that God would be so concerned about his name that he would perform and do what he's supposed to do when he was called upon, even though there was no relationship with his people, even though they had ignored him, lived in disobedience, and flagrant disobedience to his name, 
They felt that his honor was on the line and he'd perform. See, they reduced the living God to nothing more than a rabbit's foot, a lucky charm, a talisman that you pull out in a pinch when things are going bad and you need someone to bail you out. That's not biblical faith. That's superstition. And, and God was not going to have any of that. And even though it might have seemed like it was going to work, look at verse 10, probably one of the most anticlimactic verses in 1 Samuel. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home, which is another way to say they were terrified and they ran from the battlefield. So even though there was this great, okay, this is it, we got the ark, God's going to perform, the Philistines were afraid, they went to battle anyway, and Israel was completely decimated. The foolishness of God's people was thinking that, that God could be reduced to some religious relic, that he could just be called upon whenever they wanted to call upon him. And, and furthermore, thinking that this, this symbol of God's presence would actually be God's presence. And so God taught him a lesson there. And that rolls us into the second question, the second reality, the fulfillment of God's words in verses 12 through 18. So before we move on, here's the further irony of those 11 verses. The Israelites were thinking that the key to their victory was going to be to get the ark and bring it out to battle, all the while not realizing that this was actually God's way of making his word come to pass in judgment against Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. You remember that? They thought, hey, let's get the ark, and that will give us the victory. We, we figured this out. And they had no idea that God was going to use their foolishness against them to bring about his judgment that he prophesied years earlier. And that's a great irony. And so verse 12 to 16, this man uh, from Benjamin, this mysterious man, runs from the battle at Ebenezer and Aphek all the way back to Shiloh. We're talking a 20-mile, he's huffing it. He gets there in that same day, and he's reporting what's happening to the city. Then Eli, the priest, again, more and more dim, he doesn't have vision, he's going deaf. He's a picture physically of what he is spiritually, not perceiving anything. And finally, the, the runner comes to him in verse 17, says this, he who brought the news answered and said, notice these four things, like getting from bad to worse. Israel has fled before the Philistines, number one. Also, there's been a great defeat, a great slaughter amongst your people, number two. Number three, your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead. Number four, the ark of God has been captured. From bad to worse. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. So at long last, recall with me chap, the end of chapter two, at long last those words of judgment from that mysterious man of God came to pass many years later. Two really important lessons um, from this defeat that, that, that really map onto the way sometimes we conceive of God. God will suffer, rather God will suffer shame than let his people have a false relationship with him. God will suffer shame to his name rather than allow people to have a false relationship with him. Secondly, and kind of related to that, God will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. God will allow his people to be disappointed in him if it will shake us up to the God he really is, not something that we perceive him to be, not somebody who's an errand boy for our desires. 
He will allow his, his name to be diminished. He will allow his people to be disappointed in him so that we come to a better grips of who he actually is. So on the surface of this chapter, it looks like God is taking a loss here. That's how everyone would have seen this. Everyone would have seen this as God taking a loss. His name has been dishonored. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured. But when you stop and think about it, God is actually taking some really concrete steps to restore his honor and start bringing back his glory into this nation that has abandoned him. Now, you, know, you go, well, how, how, how is that supposed to happen? God has just decimated the, the religious establishment of Eli and Eli's sons who would succeed him. No longer is the corrupt priesthood in charge. Now the way has been made clear for this new office of a prophet named Samuel, who we know before this everyone already was looking to, but was living under the shadow of Eli and the priesthood. And now they've been completely decimated. The ark of God, this religious symbol of God's presence, has now been completely removed from the mists. And no longer could they appeal to tokens of God's presence. They had to rely on God's presence because of our love for him. So God, what may have seemed like a loss on the surface, was taking some real concrete steps to turn this thing around. In other words, God is always willing to take a tactical loss to secure a strategic victory. God is always willing to take a a tactical loss to secure strategic victory. And we see that right here on the battlefield of Aphek and Ebenezer. Now, think about the closest parallel we probably have is the Constitution, maybe the Bill of Rights. Um, I don't even know. Or, or if you're British, the Royal Crown or whatever it is, this was their national understanding of who they were. For 350 years, they had the Ark uh, up to that point, and no one has even laid a finger on it. No one's even touched the Ark, let alone to have the enemy of God's people take it away and put it into their temples of their false gods, which we're going to see next week. This was devastating to them. The whole understanding of the priesthood, the way their nation came before God and God spoke to them, decimated. So just in one day, in one battle, God challenges their theology that he exists for them and not the other way around, and God challenges their security in that they have this religious structure, but it's it's empty and it's just a facade. In one battle, he challenges their theology and security in hopes of shaking them from their apathy. And it worked. For the, for the most part, it worked. From here on out, is, the nation of Israel is completely different. The point is this. One of the points I'm making is this, that God specializes in taking what has gone horribly wrong, and often it includes our foolishness, our sinful actions. God specializes in taking those very things and turning them into the very opportunities that reveal His grace to His people. It may not always look like that on the surface, like 1 Samuel 4, but that's what God's been doing all along. We've actually become accustomed in our study of 1 Samuel that God was always in the background working his salvation out in such subtle ways that unless you stopped and looked and listened, we'd miss it. We saw that with the very life of Samuel compared to Hophni and Phinehas as well. So what appeared to be a defeat, and certainly it was for those who ignored God, this was a devastating defeat was actually the salvation of God working its way out through the foolishness of men. And God allowed this tactical loss to secure a greater victory. Finally, third 
point, third question, the tragedy of God's departure, or how should we think about the difficulties that we endure? This chapter ends with an unusual pericope. Uh, It's a funny word. It just simply means a couple of lines from a larger paragraph of Scripture. So there's this unusual pericope at verses 19 and 22. When the news comes, Eli dies, that Phinehas' wife, um, maybe because of the stress, the, the, the horror of what's going on, goes into birth, and she gives birth to her son as she then dies simultaneously. And she names the son Ichabod, right? You probably hear that name from Charles Dickens' uh, classic. But Ichabod means the glory of God or the glory has departed. So you imagine getting that name if you're a kid. Uh, your name means the glory has departed, Ichabod. Strangely enough, had the priest line succeeded, Ichabod, or Ichabod would have grown up to be a priest. So your priest's name would have been, this is priest, the glory of God has departed. you know. But it didn't work out that way. In verse 22, notice what she says as she ends the chapter. And she, Phinehas' wife, or wife that bore child that died, she says, the glory of God has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Well, she was right to name him that because the glory of God had departed, but for the wrong reason. The glory of God did depart Israel, but not because the ark was captured. The ark was captured because the glory of God had already departed, and the people of Israel were more than happy to let it leave. And that's what's going on. This is a chapter, I don't think we're going to see another chapter as devastating uh, as First Chapter or First Samuel 4. There's a lot of death, a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache, but what makes it tough to bear is a lot of this was completely unnecessary. We saw earlier God's salvation was always working in the background. Yeah, there was, there was ample reason to, to disbelieve God. There was ample reason to be suspicious. The priesthood was corrupt. Most of the nation were, were apathetic towards God, but there were also, also simultaneously shining examples of faith wonderful, courageous obedience and love for God in Elkanah, in Hannah, in young Samuel, in this man of God. But the people of Israel chose to follow the former rather than the latter. And you know, the reality is that things are not much different. I I wish I could say, you come to Christ Community Church and we are going to be a church of shining examples of faith and love and obedience to God, but the reality is we're a mixed bag too. If you're visiting here, you're going to see here People who are apathetic, people who dismiss God's word, people who go through the motions. But you'll also see people who are shining examples of faith, of courageous obedience and love for God. That's the church until God makes it completely pure and that's not gonna happen anytime soon. The question is, are we going to look at the former rather than the latter? Are we going to look at the things that are wrong and say, well, see, that's why I'm the way I am, or that's why I'm not involved because of that? Or are we going to say, no, that's why I can be different because that's true from them. It can be true of me. And I didn't mean to say you're the apathetic and you're the right on people, but you know what I'm saying. So the point is we're a mixed bag and we always will be. And we see that here. So things are not much different um, from 1 Samuel to our own lives point we need to see here is in 1 Samuel, God's judgment and grace. We see God's salvation working itself out in a way no one would have anticipated, that God's salvation worked out through judgment. As we conclude, um, I think many of us, we could say that we're a lot like the men uh, in this passage in verse 10. 
So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his own home. In the face of our defeat, when we realize that our earthly securities, our our propped-up understandings of who God is have failed us, we can really wonder what's going to save us now. You imagine that's the question that all these men who fled to their homes must have been asking, what's going to happen to us? Who will save us now? First Samuel continues, and the answer is, it's going to be the Lord. It's always going to be the Lord. That's always going to be the answer. The, the trouble is, we often put our hope and our salvation, our deliverance, in other forms of God until we realize they don't work. So, so we don't put our hope in objects to win physical battles for us, but we still put our hope in objects to deliver us all the same. Right, so if you're a, a fearful person, your Savior is that you're no longer going to be fearful. If you're someone who's unloved, your Savior is that you're going to be loved. If you're powerless, you think your Savior is finding power, but none of those things save the way the Lord Jesus Christ saves. It's not that those things are not important, but they will never bring the true salvation that only Christ can bring, that only God could bring. And that's what the message of 1 Samuel is always trying to remind us. 1 Samuel 4 merely foreshadows the truth that oftentimes in God's judgment, we also see God's grace. Because of this judgment now, there were thousands of Israelites who recognized the way we were living, living like however we want to live, living as if we were our own gods is not working. And they also realized, hey, the way we were living, trusting religious externalities and symbols, but not having a true relationship, that's not working either. None of these things are working. Living for ourselves and living with religion, that's not working. It was all taken from them. They're now at a point where they were open to what God was going to do. And God had positioned a man named Samuel to be able to bring them his word. 1 Samuel 4 foreshadows this theme that judgment and grace often go together. And the best place you see that is in the gospel narratives. At the cross itself, The exact picture of God's judgment upon sin is also the picture of God's grace coming to mankind because of that. So the very thing we're seeing happening on a national scale in 1 Samuel 4, that God's judgment came to the people, but because of that, they realized their need for a Savior, and grace would come from that. We see the same thing in the New Testament. The very object that was God's judgment was also God's grace to humanity. That's why Paul could say in Romans 3.26 that, that God can be both just but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can be just because he judged sin, but he can be just the justifier. He can say you are actually innocent because of what Jesus did. Taking God's judgment and giving God's grace so we're going to see that theme weave itself all through the, I was going to say the gospel of 1 Samuel, but in a sense, that's very true, that God's judgment and his grace are always woven together, and we're going to see that time and time again. Let's pray. Father, we are recipients of this reality. As I, as I am very aware that behind me is a cross, a symbol simultaneously of judgment and grace. Lord, all of us need to come to a point where we recognize it's not about living my life the way I want to, nor is it about just having religion and trusting in those things, but throwing ourselves upon your good, gracious mercy, that you are kind and love to bless your people. 
that you're actually willing to allow us to be disappointed. You're actually willing to suffer shame to your name so that we get a clearer picture of what you're all about. I pray, Lord, that you would do that for all of us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.